Jesus had seen us coming. They could see us coming with our spotlights on for over two miles away. Now they opened up and their traces began swirling towards us. Some were even bouncing off the smooth surface of the lake. This was a horrible moment. We were being dragged along at four miles a minute, almost against our will, towards the things we were going to destroy. I think at that moment the boys did not want to go. I know I did not want to go. I thought to myself, in another minute we shall all be dead, so what? I thought again, this is terrible, this feeling of fear, if it is fear. By now we were a few hundred yards away, and I said quickly to Pulford under my breath, better leave the throttles open now and stand by to pull me out of the seat if I get hit. As I glanced at him, I thought he looked a little glum on hearing this. The Lancaster was really moving, and I began looking through the special sight on my windscreen. Spam had his eyes glued to the bomb site in front, his hand on his button. A special mechanism on board had already begun to work so that the mine would drop, we hoped, in the right spot. Terry was still checking the height. Joe and Trev began to raise their guns. The flak could see us quite clearly now. It was not exactly inferno. I have been through far worse flak fire than that, but we were very low. There was something sinister and slightly unnerving about the whole operation. My aircraft was so small and the dam was so large. It was thick and solid, and now it was angry. My aircraft was very small. We skimmed along the surface of the lake, and as we went my gunner was firing into the defences, and the defences were firing back with vigour, their shells whistling past us. For some reason we were not being hit. Spam said, left, little more left, steady, 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 coming up. Of the next few seconds I remember only a series of kaleidoscopic incidents. The chatter from Joe's front guns pushing out traces which bounced off the left-hand flak tower. Pulford crouching beside me, the smell of burnt cordite, the cold sweat underneath my oxygen mask, the tracers flashing past the windows, they all seemed the same colour now, and the inaccuracy of the gun positions near the power station, they were firing in the wrong direction, the closeness of the damn wall, Spam's exultant, mine gone, Hutch's red very lights to blind the flat gunners, the speed of the whole thing. Someone saying over the RT, Good show, leader. Nice work. Then it was all over, and at last we were out of range, and there came over us all, I think, an immense feeling of relief and confidence. Trevor said, I will get those bastards. And he began to spray the dam with bullets until at last he too was out of range. Eighty years ago, on the night of the 16th of May, 1943, 133 men of the Royal Air Force in 19 Lancaster bombers flew a daring mission to destroy the dams in Germany's Ruhr Valley. Flying at night, at low level, these intrepid men destroyed two out of the three dams. 1,300 were killed on the ground. Eight out of 19 aeroplanes didn't return. Three airmen were taken prisoner. Of the 133 men who took part in the Dambusters raid, 53 were killed. This is perhaps the most famous story of a bombing mission in the Second World War. I first heard today's guest give a terrific talk on Operation Chastise at the Turf Club a couple of years ago, and I'm very pleased he is with us today in person. Welcome back to the podcast Hugh MacDonald Buchanan. Tom, thank you very much indeed. A welcome to Bloody Violent History. 
My name is Tom Ashton and in this show we talk about moments from the past that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we are heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. Hugh, before we dive into the detail of the Dambusters raid, can you give us a brief sketch of where we are in the war? What, what has been going on in Sicily? in Russia, in on the Atlantic, in the Far East, in the preparations for the Normandy landings, and more generally in Bomber Command. A huge subject, I apologise, but just a sentence or two to set the stage, the mise-en-scene. I think, to cut a long story short, uh, the best way to look at it is to understand that Winston Churchill, at the time of the raid, was in the United States of America... Uh, under discussions known as Operation Quadrant, um, specifically to discuss preparations for the invasion of Europe from the UK by Allied forces. And the reason that conversation was happening was partly because Stalin was banging on the door and saying, I really need another front opened up to divert German attention, but also because uh, everything had now come to a... Uh, uh, a successful uh, conclusion, or close to coming a successful conclusion in North Africa, which meant the Allies now dominated the southern coast of the Mediterranean, which opened up all sorts of aggressive opportunities that needed to be discussed. Uh, They could, for example, talk about an attack in the Balkans, uh, the invasion of uh, Sicily and Italy, and the Americans were particularly keen to advance invasion of France by the south of France uh, via via Corsica. So in many ways, the tide was looking as though it was just beginning to to turn, but it also looked like a long, long game because by no means were the uh, German forces defeated, although they were stretched and beginning to be pressed hard on the, uh, on the Eastern Front. And, of course, Churchill was always very, very worried about the prospects for D-Day, really right up until the last moments of D-Day. So 1943 and May 1943, something of a turning point in the whole of the, in the, whole of the war. Great. Good, good start. OK, so Bomber Command itself has been operating uh, since the beginning of the war, um, but by 1943, it's a very big operation. Bomber Command has gone through um, growing pains. Um, I think it's important to go back to the status of uh, uh, the bombing fleet, really starting at the end of the the First World War. Um, Bombing, as we began to understand it between the wars, really started for the British at any rate on on the Western Front. Uh, when they developed long-range bombers to try and attack German industrial cities. And indeed, the Germans were doing exactly the same same to us. London was uh, bombed by Gotha bombers, uh, second generation after the, after the airships came. Um, after the war, uh, well, the RAF, of course, had been formed on April Fool's Day, 1918. But after the war, the Air Force really needed to bang its own drum, it felt, in order to ensure its survival. The long short of it is, in those interwar years, it managed to acquire a significant proportion of the defence budget. Albeit that, that defence budget was uh, declining, but it did get the investment to invest in a, uh, a bombing fleet, 
principally with two-engine bombers. Um, the difficulty for Bomber Command at the opening of the war is that a lot of its equipment uh, and its facilities were not state-of-the-art. It actually needed more investment, and that's the irony of it. It had won the political game, it had won investment, but it still needed to do more. For example, it didn't have uh, successful nighttime navigation, which is going to come and form part of our story, uh, uh, part of the Dambuster uh, story. At the opening of the war, Bomber Command is probably no more than four to 500 aeroplanes. Uh, by the time you get to 1943, it's non- won another political battle, which means it's got the green light to escalate its investment and its bombing programme. And the, as you say, Bomber Command grows hugely between the end of 1942 and May 1943. And it so happens that Harris wants to start his first really big raids on Germany in May 1943 with his new aircraft, the great new Lancaster uh, Lancaster bomber. Um, so, yes, it is now a huge operation, and you only have to travel around East Anglia and Lincolnshire, like I've been doing at the end of last year, at the start of this year, in fact, to have a look around some of the old airfields to see the huge amount of investment uh, by the government in this um, in this bombing operation. Every single air crew was seven people for the long-range heavy bombers. It's estimated that the ground crew for each Lancaster was between 35 and 40 people. That means that a base for a single squadron, possibly 21 aircraft, could have a staff of well in excess of 1,000 people. Well, you've got to start thinking about uh, not just aeroplanes, you've got to start thinking about support services, roads, railways, uh, runways, accommodation. So, yes, it's a massive operation. And, and how many squadrons in, the, in Bomber Command at this time, roughly? About 55. Right, so that's, that's that 55,000. And then you've got uh, the aircraft have to be built. The aircraft have to be built. Uh, not only that, they have to be incredibly carefully maintained. Um, not just because of operations, but because of training flights. So if you can think of the, and we'll talk about this a little later, the intensive uh, training that the dambuster crews went through uh, in the run-up to the, to the operation, every sortie they did as a training sortie, those aircraft would have to be very, very carefully maintained so they were actually in a fit condition to go again the next day or the day after that. They're still fragile, you know, they don't have modern production techniques. And they are state-of-the-art, uh, but things can quite easily go wrong. And one of, the, um, one of the things that Air Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, who commands Bomber Command from 1942, said after the war, is that, you know, the, the Navy fight one or two engagements in a war, the Army perhaps fight one or two a year in a war, whereas Bomber Command were fighting engagements every week throughout the war. So it, there was a very high intensity of effort. And it was in early 1943 that he was uh, approached by his second-in-command, Air Vice Marshal Robert Sornby, a very loyal number two, and also an avid lepidopterist, I believe. He liked to go out and chase butterflies when he was trying to relax. With this plan to destroy the dams. And Harris's initial... Uh, reaction 
was recorded as as such because he 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 was often being asked to do this and do that and he really wanted to keep his main focus on destroying Germany and his reaction was uh, recorded as this is tripe of the wildest description there are so many ifs and ands that there is not the smallest chance of it working to begin with, the bomb would have to be perfectly balanced around its axis. Otherwise, the vibration at 500 RPM would wreck the aircraft or tear the bomb loose. I don't believe a word of its supposed ballistics on the surface. It would be much easier to design a bomb to run on the surface, built to nose in on contact, sink and explode. This bomb would, of course, be heavier than the water and exactly fit existing bomb bays. At all costs, stop them putting aside Lancasters and reducing our bombing effort on this wild goose chase. Let them prove the practicality of the weapon first. The war will be over before it works, and it never will. Well, that's quite a strange statement, but it's easy to have sympathy with um, Sir Arthur Harris. And he was under immense pressure. Uh, we talked about the, the upscaling of the, the bomber force, uh, and the reason it was being upscaled is because they managed to win the political game saying this is it, this is one of the easiest ways and the cheapest ways for us to go ahead and win the war. Uh, and it's by destroying Germany's capability to wage war. He had an enormous logistical task in uh, assembling a fleet, uh, making sure that the air crews were, were trained. Uh, you've probably noticed that there is no co-pilot in a in a Lancaster aircraft. There was a shortage uh, shortage of pilots. Um, to try and upscale a force like that with quality personnel is a is a really big task, and it must have um, created a lot of pressure for the man who had to carry the can and answer to the chiefs of staffs as to as to progress. Uh, I also and, th- and also yeah. he had well perhaps you're going to mention this the um, he had experience with what he called boffins. Yes, uh, and and you know right the way back to his time in the Royal Flying Corps because he was in the uh, night fighter squadrons in UK in 1916, shooting uh, down Zeppelins. Yes, and I was also about to mention that in the quotation that you you gave, he demonstrated a, a considerable amount of technical knowledge. Those are really valid points. You know, he's saying to the people coming up with this scheme, get it past me, you know, and he de- demonstrates uh, a lot of knowledge and puts his finger on some of the key potential weaknesses. And he also hints at the enormous diversion of resources that it takes to develop a, uh, a bomb of that nature and indeed to train specialist crews. More than that, those 20-plus aeroplanes, Lancasters, that were going to carry the bomb had to be specially adapted in order to be able to achieve the, achieve the task. When Barnes Wallace goes into his boss at uh, uh, Vickers, having just been given the green light for this, uh, his boss turns around and says, tell me, Barnes, why do you need 20,000 workers in Manchester to achieve this task? <laughs> I think an exaggeration, but it does demonstrate to you the concerns, justifiable concerns, that Sir Arthur had. This reading is from Bomber Harris by Henry Probert. The most spectacular event in the four-month assault was in fact a one-off, in which Harris himself played a key role. The story began in February when he poo-pooed Barnes Wallace's bouncing bomb and the possibility of using it to breach the rural dams. He was not alone in his doubts, as Elworthy recalled to him much later. Your scepticism of what just seemed like another crazy idea was certainly shared by your staff. Yet when the incredulous Elworthy went to be briefed by the inventor, 
he decided he could not entirely dismiss it, whereupon he and Soundby persuaded Harris to see Wallace. It was a most unusual meeting, as John Morpurgo, Wallace's biographer, puts it. Harris had an almost frenetic mistrust of inventors and, until Cochrane had persuaded him to the contrary, saw Wallace as just another scientist, crazed out of peacetime sanity by the urgencies of war. Yet, as Morpurgo also comments, they had similarities. Both mistrusted politicians, disliked senior civil servants and despised obstructionists. They possessed determination and originality far beyond most of their contemporaries, and between them they had as much diplomacy as a circus prize-fighter. Harris's alleged greeting was typical. My boy's lives are too precious to be wasted on your crazy notions. He himself never accepted that he had addressed Wallace in this forbidding way, and he listened to his visitor and watched the film with patience, cross-questioned with skill and understanding, and admitted that he had not been fully or accurately informed of the details. His farewell was non-committal, though he did say, to Wallace's surprise, that Portal had authorised the conversion of three Lancasters. In fact, Harris was sufficiently impressed to back the proposed use of the new weapon, so on the 15th of March, he briefed Cochrane to form a special squadron and nominated Guy Gibson, already well known to him from his own days in Five Group, to command it. And, and Barnes Wallace, we'll, we'll talk about him in a minute, but he is uh, the engineer. He, he actually, when this gets turned down by Harris, he then basically goes to Churchill and persuades Churchill and becomes a Churchill priority. Uh, eventually. Initially, however, when Churchill hears of this task, and Churchill likes to hear of this sort of thing, and he consults uh, Professor Lindemann, who becomes Lord, Lord Churchill. That's known in, uh, in Churchill circles as the prof. Churchill would always bounce ideas off him. Now, the prof didn't like this idea at all, not just because of the technical aspects, but he believes it's not worth the candle because he doesn't think the target's worth the uh, price, which is quite an interesting angle, one that we will discuss again when we get to the, get the aftermath. Uh, but Barnes-Wallace is, is nothing if not persistent and indeed confident in the um, capability of his capability of scheme. And he keeps banging on the door and eventually he persuades certain key characters like uh, Captain Winterbottom, who was very involved in the Bletchley project uh, earlier on. Captain Winterbottom's a very well-connected um, man and he puts a word around Whitehall, this is worth looking at, worth looking at. And eventually Whitehall cave, a bit like some of the dams that are going to be destroyed a, a little later, and they, uh, they get the, the green light, but only after um, Barnes-Wallace has gone through a lot of practical uh, testing in order to demonstrate the feasibility of the project. As we've mentioned, Wallace, let's talk about some of the people involved in Operation Chastise, the dam's raid. We've got the, the engineers, Barnes-Wallace and Roy Chadwick. Two of the greatest designing engineers produced by uh, modern Britain. What's interesting about them uh, both is that they all both had very good early schooling. Um, they didn't go to public schools or private schools, uh, grammar schools, and neither of them went to university. They both started as uh, apprentices and trainees in technical firms, technical businesses, after they'd done technical 
training college and had surfaced to the top of their uh, tree within uh, Vickers, in the case of Barnes-Wallace. Vickers, as you will call, is the big aircraft production and armaments production business. And Chadwick A.V. Rowe, known as Avro. Barnes-Wallace develops the Wellington bomber and Chadwick develops the, the Lancaster bomber and will also play a very active role in the amending of that Lancaster bomber to suit the, uh, to suit the, uh, the project. Neither of these men appear to have had... Um, a vast ego. They're confident in the work that they they do. Clearly, have a sense of uh, sense of duty. Both are people who have experienced the First World War. In fact, Barnes Wallace joined the Artists' Rifles. He was initially working on um, British airships. Nobody thought the British airships were going to be particularly used on any any, any scale. Uh, so he joined the artist rifles, and then they thought they probably did need to use uh, airships, or at least the Royal Navy did. And so he was recalled back again. Both of them, of course, were of that generation who'd seen contemporaries die and suffer in the First War uh, and gone through the trauma of the interwar years. And they knew just what a desperate business the Second World War was. Yes, and um, that um, it was unfinished business from yeah. the First War. And I think the particularly impressive thing for me about Bond's Wallace is he never really loses his his temper when he's faced with um, what must have come some pretty standard arguments as he's going picking his way through the the white hall hall jungle he's always there making his his case you know he doesn't get angry um, he doesn't take it in a in a way that uh, makes him lose his wool. You don't get the impression he's suffering from a, a bruised ego. And incidentally, also pointing out that the work he's doing on the Dam Buster bomb, until he gets the green light, is out of hours. He's actually working as a full-time employee for, for Vickers. So he's actually working in his lunch break and, uh, and, and at home. So he's fully committed. And dedicated. Conviction yeah. and dedication, yeah. And the two leaders, briefly, before we get on to 617 Squadron, Harris and the commander of Fife Group. Yes. Well, Harris, um, we can do this one together, I think. (laughs) Sir Arthur was uh, certainly the right man for the job for running uh, Bomber Command um, in that he was single-minded in getting together a bombing fleet that was going to perform the job of defeating Germany on the home front. He was certainly of the opinion that uh, it would be more efficacious to attack Germany from the air, destroy its industries, its power plants, its coal mines, through a programme of sustained, uh, sustained bombing. Uh, he thought that this was uh, so much the case that it was more efficient than land operations. And he said... Uh, on a number of occasions, that many soldiers' lives would be saved if you properly supported the bombing scheme that we're taking into the heartlands of uh, heartlands of Germany. And in addition, uh, there's terrific opposition when D-Day comes along, not just from uh, Sir Arthur Harris in the initial stages anyway, uh, but also from Carl Spatz, who's the um, commander of the US 8th Air Force, both playing the same line. And it says, look, we are the people that are winning the war. It's the air war that's beating Germany. You know, if everything goes wrong on, 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 on D-Day, 
it's uh, it's no, it's a mistake that need never have never have happened. But they generally believe this. It's um, a, a philosophy that they will um, you know stick to uh, and have to be moved off it. When he's told, Harris is told by uh, Portal to support Eisenhower in the D-Day Normandy landings. He does, you know, once he's been given his orders, yes. he accepts them. And well, he, he, he has he gets, to, because Eisenhower threatens to resign. Right. But so, he gets a very good um, report yeah. from Eisenhower later saying, you know... He got he, the support. He got the support. Absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned that because exactly the same thing happens over the Dam Buster raid. Um, it is, it, he's not attracted by, by it by any circumstances. But the minute that Portal's convinced, Portal's his boss... And Churchill is, and he's told to go ahead and support it. He does it wholeheartedly to the best of his ability and ensures it has the resources that are requested of him. And then Five Group CEO, who's uh, they're going to actually uh, organise the raid. Yeah, um, Cochrane. Well, he's a he's a real meat and potatoes um, air force uh, commander. He joins the Royal Naval Air Service uh, service in 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 the First World War. Um, then transfers into the RAF once that's created, remains a serviceman uh, in the interwar years and is chosen personally by uh, Harris to succeed him as the commander of five bomber group. He's one of those characters who's uh, implacable, really calm under, un, uh, under pressure. He has a, a natural gift for command. By that I mean if he asks you ever politely to do something, it doesn't occur to you to question uh, what he's asking you, uh, asking you to do. He gets immense loyalty from his subordinates because he's uh, supportive. And, of course, his planning capabilities are of extreme ability. And if you're running operations that require very, very precise uh, planning, not just to get them off the ground, but also to see them through to fruition, you know, through flight planning and all the rest of it. Um, you need somebody at the top who's capable of managing that process. Now, of course, the details will be delegated to people further down the line, uh, but he's the one who set, set, set the mould. And I think, quite a, in a way, quite a, quite a charismatic character. He's not, he's not flamboyant, but he's quiet, and again, is one of those people I think instil confidence. Once the green light is lit, Bomber Command have to create a new squadron, 617 Squadron. Tell us a bit about some of the characters in 617 and the squadron itself, where it was located and how they were selected. Well, um, Sir Arthur decides um, immediately that he's not going to pull off a single squadron from frontline duty. Um, he's going to assemble a completely new uh, squadron um, based at Scampton in, um, in Lincolnshire. Which, he, which, for our American listeners, is northeast England, a very fine part of the country. Very flat, very, very suitable for the really long runways that, uh, that, these, uh, 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 um, that these, bombers, these bombers require. He immediately suggests to Cochrane that the person who should lead this squadron is, is Guy Gibson. This is from Sir Arthur Harris's introduction to Guy Gibson's Enemy Coast Ahead. Guy Gibson fought from the first day of the phony war, phony because we had nothing to keep fighting with, until his death. 
He lived to see the dawn of certain victory, and no one man did more to bring it about. He would not stop fighting. He resisted or avoided all efforts to rest him from operations. For his first rest, he asked to be transferred to night fighting, and as a highly skilled night pilot, he was of great value to fighter command in raising and training the night fighting force which eventually defeated the Blitz. To enforce a second rest on him, I had to make a personal appeal to another warrior of similar calibre, Winston Spencer Churchill, who there and then ordered Gibson down to Chequers and took him with him to the United States. There he arranged for Gibson to be detained for a short period of travelling around air bases talking to American airmen. In a third and final attempt to force him to rest from operations, he was put on his group staff. A few days later, he was found in his office with literally tears in his eyes at being separated from his beloved crews and unable to go on operations. It was, in fact, breaking his heart. He always had direct access to me and on further pressure from him and his AOC, I quite wrongly allowed him to return to operations. He appointed himself Master Bomber, the most dangerous and most vital task of all, on his last operation, which was, of course, a complete success. He was heard to give his crews a pat on the back over the radio and start them homeward. He never returned. Now, Guy Gibson has already done uh, over 170 enemy action flights and he's only 24 years of age. He has a DSO and and, and bar. D- um, distinguished Service Order, yeah. Distinguished Service Order. And he's come to uh, Harris's notice on a, on, on a, on a number of uh, occasions. And so he's, in a sense, headhunted. Um, but Harris uh, doesn't say, that's got to be the man you've got to have, Cochrane. You know, do you agree? And Cochrane says, absolutely. I know Gibson, and so they both of them uh, agree that this is the right man to lead lead the task. Now, Gibson turns out to be a brilliant leader for this uh, for this project in in so many ways, but he he is he faces some difficulties, and it's not an easy task for him. Um, he's about to go on leave. Um, he's exhausted. It's suspected he's suffering from battle exhaustion. He's a married man, but the marriage isn't going um, too well. In addition to that, he's beginning to suffer from really bad gout. And flying a Lancaster a bomber is a very, very physical thing. And it will be the case that one day before the Dam Buster raid is actually launched, so on the, on the 15th, that morning he goes to, goes to the doctor and says, my feet are really hurting. You know, what have you got for me to take away the pain? So he's fighting a lot of demons before he even forms up to the task of actually having to create a squadron. And he's not a squadron leader. He's never created a squadron before. And he's suddenly told that he's in command of over 700 men. And he's in command, uh, he has assistants, but basically he's got to set the pattern for establishing the whole squadron, which means the flying crew and the ground crew, backup staff and all the rest of it. He's the, uh, he, he's the boss. And, and he would be what told, you can go, go to Scampton and this is your corner that you can use. Or would Scampton be his entire he, real estate for him? 
Yeah, no, Scampton was Scampton was it for six one seven six. There was no other squadron there as well. Uh, no, because they were operating under conditions of strict secrecy. Yeah, and effectively, Scampton was uh, was was sealed off. Um, but the first thing he's asked to do is select the crews, given that you're not just picking a squadron off the line. You know, you don't have a ready-made one. And uh, one of the difficulties he faces is that he's come up through the ranks in certain areas of the of the air force. He doesn't have a broad. He knows the people he's served with. He doesn't know the broad gamut of everybody else out there in in in, in bomber command. Um, but he sets about uh, putting together uh, the crews, um, and this goes on for quite some time. That you know they don't actually have an assembled team. In fact, they're still assembling some members of the team just a couple of days before the uh, before before the off. So, so it's not like when bomber crews were selected, uh, having arrived at a squadron, they would all get into a hangar and uh, have a cup of tea and a sandwich and they would select each other. It wasn't like that. No, it wasn't like that. And, of course, there were some um, political problems. So word went out to the uh, uh, the bomber squadrons and say, we need two people. Uh, they might say we need two pilots or we might need two navigators or we might need a couple of gunners or whatever it is. And, of course, the people at the squadrons didn't want to lose their best men. And so they would probably send off a couple of also rans to see if they could get rid of the people they didn't particularly want in their own squadron. And when they were told that we really need experienced people for this, they are probably going to send them somebody who'd done two tours of duty and was about to go on leave and you know, send them over. So all those little objections down at the grassroots level had to be, had to be uh, got over. And many of the um, crews weren't teams until they got to Scampton and started training with one another. And they were only together about six weeks. And this is one of the things that up until then, uh, Harris and other commanders in, in Bomber Command have been trying to avoid, which is this sort of the special forces effect. You know, the moment you start singling out certain people for special duties, you denude the, good, the really good people in, in the normal teams and there becomes a sort of them-and-us situation, which can have problems with morale. There's a lot in that, and the, the parallel is um, uh, uh, when the commandos were looking for volunteers, you know, they tended to attract good people from regiments. That caused a great deal of resentment and sort of intra-force uh, angst, as it were. But this is a special project that, in a sense, cannot fail, and in order to give it the best... Uh, headwind it has to have the best people available but I think you're right I think Sir Arthur would not want this have been a uh, a precedent for creating many more squadrons of this this nature except when they started using pathfinders those people were a direct benefit to the general bombing program and so he agreed in putting people out getting them specially trained for that task yes and that was all part of the master bomber yeah plan and, and so on wasn't it Okay, so we had Guy Gibson in 617. He was obviously helped by certain uh, individuals. Um, anyone you want to mention? I think um, the one he, the pilot he knows best is Hopgood. And Hopgood will fly with him in the opening attack on the, on the Mona Dam. Uh, they're contemporaries, they've worked together, and they are generally uh, friends. Gibson's a bit of a, in many ways, a lonely character. Um, but I think he felt need for having somebody very familiar on on side, and Hopgood was the and Hopgood was the one. 
everybody else assigned to the team at higher levels was extremely supportive. Uh, so he was able to rely on an enormous amount of, um, of, of, of backup. For example, he says that when the supply situation goes into action, he doesn't have to get involved in that. And suddenly there's a convoy of trucks turning up with everything from office furniture and paper clips, paper and blotting paper to chairs and, 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 and bullets and, you know, spares for the aircraft. But who's doing that? That's uh, so the station station commander. It's a chap called Whitworth. Okay. So he's he's Mister Mister Logistics, Mister yeah. Admin. Yeah. And then you've got people like Harold Martin. Yes, absolutely. Bedecked with medals as well. Well, so many of them were bedecked with medals. I mean, so many of them had uh, uh, DFCs, the the DSO. Uh, at an incredibly young age, you asked a little bit earlier what was the the character of the uh, squadron like. Well, first of all, they were 133 in the in the flying crew. Uh, the one thing they had in common was their youth. They're all incredibly young. The chap that Gibson chooses as one of his flight commanders is Charles Maudsley, who's only 20, 21, and yet he's done two tours of duty. You know, he's it's an like experienced yeah, he's an experienced, experienced pilot. Um, but their diversity is another common characteristic. Uh, they were Canadians. In the, in the true sense of the word. In the true sense of the word. Uh, they weren't all Brits. Was, they came from across the, across the empire, Canadians, Australians, uh, New Zealanders, South Africana. Yeah, so it was a very broad group. And classes as well. Absolutely right. But if you, if you look at the construction of a, of a bomber crew, you can see how they all have to be... Uh, technically very, very proficient to what, yeah. they're, what they're doing. And in a sense, we might talk about this a little later on. One of the more modern feelings about the upscaling of these enormous bomber fleets during the course of the war, the United States as, uh, as well, they're beginning to cream off the best people because they needed the best people. Uh, this is one of the reasons why the political argument between the forces becomes, um, becomes so intense. OK, well, before we move on, just might mention a couple more um, characters in 617 Squadron. The last of the Dambuster crew to die was Johnny Johnson, DFM, who died in um, December 2022. So incredible that this raid was so dangerous and yet he survived it and then lived another 80 years. Uh, and survived as a, as, a, as a bomb aimer, which must be one of the most frightening positions in this particular raid because immediately your responsibilities were doubled because with low-level flying you were the person at the front of the aeroplane singing out as to whether there are electricity cables ahead or a tree so you're having to work with the the navigator oh i see and not just when you're at the, at the not just of bombing. there to pull the lever uh, right. for the for the uh, for the bomb One of the things that Johnny Johnson mentions, and if anybody wants to, they can look him up on on YouTube. He was interviewed. I can't remember who interviewed him. But he was asked as to what Guy Gibson, the boss, was like. And he said very clearly, you know, he was... uh, He he, he didn't really speak to the likes of me. You know, anybody below officer level, he was... Because he was a sergeant, I think, wasn't he? Yes. And this, this was a common complaint. I mean, even when Gibson was qualifying... It had been noted that his attitude to uh, minions, as it were, was not great. But, Johnson says, and this I think is absolutely fascinating, he says, but you can't take it away from me, he was an absolutely majestic 
leader, that during that raid and in the training up to it, he was absolutely magnificent. And he singles out in particular uh, when the attack on the Mona Dam, in fact, both the dams Gibson was involved in, the Mona and the uh, the Eder, he, uh, he went in first on the Mona, dropped his bomb, uh, hit hit the target, but it didn't break. Uh, Hopgood, his friend, then takes the next approach and his aircraft is destroyed by, by flak. On the third approach, Gibson goes in and flies level with the new aircraft and slightly ahead to steady the nerves of the crew on the other Lancaster, but also to attract some of the flak away from them so they can concentrate on the task. And Johnson rated that really, really highly. Well, I think at this point we should then get on to the raid itself. The plan and then then the mission. The objective was to um, shatter the uh, dams that held the water, that drove the hydroelectricity, uh, that in turn drove so many of the, uh, the machines and industrial equipment in the Ruhr, which was the heartland of the German armaments. Uh, industry and it's noticeable that parallel to this operation, um, so Arthur Harris's uh, activity was focused on what he called the Battle of the Ruhr. That is what he had planned to start in May uh, from February. So in a sense, these two projects are working in in parallel for a similar objective. It's just that, as we discussed earlier, uh, Sir Arthur wasn't convinced by the um, by the execution, way this thing was going to be be uh, executed, but that was the objective. And also, I'm, that that at least would help with some disguising of the route into the Ruhr. If they were used to raids every night, they wouldn't have worked out that this was a, a different type of raid. Yes, I mean it's it's um, adds to the general general gen, general uh, confusion. Uh, the problem with that, however, is that the Germans at this stage have uh, quite an effective. Uh, anti-aircraft defence system, where they are beginning to integrate night fighters, um, ACAC, and search lamps as well, and it's beginning to work quite well. So they can pick up things that are happening locally, rather than just saying, "Oh, this is part of the general general noise. We shouldn't be too uh, too worried." And of course, they can alert outlying stations. The anti-aircraft defences, certainly on the Mona Dam, have already been alerted that any aircraft in the in the area, but that's the that's the objective, and the objective was originally the one that motivated Barnes Wallace in the first place. Going way back to 1940, when the war first started, and he was sitting in his office at Vickers, thinking, "Look, how can I, as a designer, make a real contribution to this war effort?" And he thought, "Well, you know, we really got hit hard. Germany's means of creating war, which means industrial targets, be they power plants, factories, or or coal mines." And his first stab at doing this, effectively, was by using earthquake bombs. So bombs that would penetrate 100 feet into the ground and set up such shockwaves and force waves that they would actually destroy stuff. Whereas at the time, uh, Bomber Command only had available to it a stock of World War I shells and a whole lot of um, shells that weren't much bigger than £500. And to cut a, a, again, to cut a long story short, those tended to destroy things on the surface. But the shockwaves would just evaporate in thin air because there's nothing to contain them. Whereas Wallace's idea was, if you really want to destroy a target, get those shockwaves moving. But of course he was, uh, and deep down, so you can take out foundations, uh, he was turned down. 
And uh, that is when he started thinking about uh, an alternative. And that's when he came up with the, uh, with the idea of the bomb. So this is always, that was always the, the objective. The means for doing so, as we discussed, is this uh, extraordinary bouncing uh, bomb, which he said he got from the idea of skipping stones across a... Uh, across the seafront on a on a on a family family holiday, and he started experimenting on that on that basis, and actually got to the stage where he built micro models, fired by a catapult, hoping to see that they would bite nicely into the into the uh, uh, model of the wall of a dam, and they didn't. They kept sinking, and he kept wondering why they were sinking, and it turns out that it was sinking because the minute they hit the the water they create topspin. So they topple over on themselves. And as they have topspin, that forces it to sink. So he says, what's the antidote to topswing? Backswing. Mm. Uh, which is how they, he then comes up with this idea of putting a motor onto the end of the, the, the explosive capsules and rotates it. And he calculates it, it comes out at 500 um, uh, revolutions per minute. Which, given the size of the bomb, is uh, terrifying rate of revolution, isn't it? It is a terrifying rate of revolution, and it means you have to have the calipers that are holding this thing calibrated in, in such a way that they have to be dead opposite one another so the thing isn't on, on, on a tilt. But also he knew, and it was a well-established principle, that um, uh, rotating quite fast on, on, on axis gives stability if you go at the right speed. So if you don't get the right speed, it's more likely to to rumble and rum, okay. rumble and turn like a gyroscope. Yeah. So the, that's the plan. The training was intensive, and they really didn't have much time to get on with it. Uh, the training was intensive, um, and you're right. They only this this project is it achieves an immense amount of sex in many ways, but it, in many ways it's scrambled into. You know, they're still experimenting with the bomb as the pilots are being changed. Um, the aircraft are being adapted to accept the bomb uh, as the guys are being trained. Some of them don't even get a chance to train on the adapted aircraft. They're still using uh, old, proper old-fashioned, well, the old-fashioned, the Lancasters that they're used to as opposed to the one. And part of the skill um, to be learnt in training is how do you fly an aircraft like that with a four-ton bomb Half sticking out of the bomb doors have been removed. You know, sticking up below the belly of the um, the belly of the fuselage. And they and they fly low level all the way, not just at the dam. During training, they fly at uh, 160 feet, which is what they've been told is the right level to drop the bomb from from Wallace's former calculations. Well, during the uh, testing of the bomb, he finds that 160 feet is too high. Now, the reason it's too high is it's uh, the height causes damage to the bomb once it hits the sur surface of the water. So he's got to come down. He also makes a few other adjustments. So originally, the bomb was going to be slightly oval-shaped. And the oval would be provided not by the casting of the steel, but by a wooden covering. And that's the bit that kept smashing when it hit the water. So they now go with something that's a bit like a tin can, in essence. Yes, um, cylindrical. Cylindrical. So yeah. they are now asked to go down to 60 feet for the purposes of actually releasing the bomb. And, I mean, 60 feet, the wingspan of, of a Lancaster bomber is o over 100 feet. Yeah, about 100, I think it's 100... So, I mean, yeah, it must have felt like they were on the ground. Yeah. It must have been absolutely uh, terrifying. And Charles Maudsley, actually, uh, you know, 
just about hits hits the water. And there's stories of them coming coming home with twigs and branches in the front of the in the front of the aircraft. But the other aspect of low flying isn't for the purposes of releasing the bomb. It's for the purposes of security as you're flying into the continent to try and get below German radar. And in order to do that, it's thought you probably have to fly uh, 150 feet and lower. And also, it's thought if you're flying fast at a low level, then the larger German anti-aircraft guns are going to find it more difficult to get a, get a bead on you. It is thought that the casualties uh, suffered by the squadron are principally by smaller calibre, Bofors-style, fast-firing anti-aircraft uh, guns, which typically either have two barrels or four. But if you're up against the four-barreled one, they're pumping out uh, 800 rounds a minute. And that's a pretty... That's, that's, that's like a 12-bore cartridge, as it were. That's scattering a lot of uh, firepower at a target that's quite large and quite low. So they're within range of the smaller calibre. And as always, when you're coming on to uh, dropping a bomb, you have to be steady. And in this instance, you have to be at 60 foot and is exactly the right distance from the dam to push the button. You've got no room to manoeuvre and yes. corkscrew out the, the way. The equation that Wallace was working with was um, weight of the, uh, uh, the bomb, its trajectory as it's released from the, uh, from the aircraft, therefore the speed of the, uh, the aircraft, and the height of the aircraft, so he can achieve exactly the right sort of skip so that the bomb skips twice with quite large bounds, then successfully smaller ones, so that it goes against the wall of the dam. Uh, the other benefit of having backspin is once it hits the wall of the dam and is still spinning, that it tends to be um, spun into the side of the dam as it drops, rather than fall away from it, which makes the explosion much more, uh, uh, much more efficient. So they had to use some particular gadgets because flying at night is very difficult and altimeters weren't perfect or not sufficient to re be relied upon for the accuracy that was, that was required. So from the height point of view, they came up with this device whereby they attached two spotlights, one to the front of the aircraft and one to the back, set so that they combined, when they combined on the ground, the beams combined on the ground, because each one's at a slant, and formed a figure of eight on the, the water surface, that was exactly 60 feet. And if you want an analogy, it's a bit like setting the um, machine guns on the Spitfire so that the bullets meet at a certain distance in front, which is the distance you require to, um, to attack an enemy, enemy aircraft. So that's how they gauge the, uh, the height. In order to gauge the distance from the dam, Somebody from the uh, Ministry of Air Defence Boffins Department came up with a really simple uh, solution, which was a wooden V with a nail at the uh, end of each strut of the V, the wider part of the V. And when each nail lined up with the towers on the dam, the ACAC towers on the dam, that would be exactly the distance that was required, the 450 feet or whatever it was. Uh, so your bomb aimer is listening to the guy who's saying, we've got the right height, we've got the right height, we've got the right height. And it's probably him as well if he's having to look at both. But what he's really having to do is concentrate on that little V-shaped strut. And the minute 
those two pins line up with the towers, you've got to press the release button. Operation Chastise, the mission to destroy the Mona Dam, the Eder Dam and the Salper Dam, three dams. 16th of May, what happens? Well, the battle plan, I should have actually, there are subsidiary dams. So if um, there were bombs left over, having attacked the three, three main ones, uh, there were secondary targets as well. Well, the battle plan is that the squadron divides itself into three groups. One is, and they're going to take different routes into the, into the continent, different routes into, into Germany. Uh, one group is going to fly to the uh, north at the top end of the Zyder Sea, so through the top end of the northern end of the Netherlands, and then cut south to its target. And its target is going to be the Sorper Dam, and that's five aircraft. As it happens, only one will make it to the, to the target. Um, the second group will be the advanced group taking off directly under the control of uh, Guy Gibson, nine aircraft, and they're going to make their way to the, the Mona Dam. Takeoff is scheduled for nine o'clock in the evening. Behind them are scheduled to take off uh, around midnight is what they call the reserve group, which is another group of five aircraft. That's 19 aircraft altogether. And they are there to fill in the gaps. So if any of the primary targets hadn't been taken, they would have been allocated to, to a primary target. Or if they had, then they would uh, receive instructions either from Gibson, if he's still able to control things in the air, or uh, from Grantham. Uh, which is where the uh, five bomber group headquarters is in um, in in St Vincent's Hall. So you've got these waves of aircraft uh, appearing. The timing is such that the northern group, going across the top end of the Netherlands, crosses exactly the same time as Gibson's group, which is going through the more southern part of the uh, Netherlands. The routes chosen and carefully looked at are by routes which they believe will be not flak-free, but less flak-intense. So by now, in this stage of the war, they know where flak protection for things like factories and rubber yards are. Uh, they know where the night fighter airdromes are, and they try and plan a route that dodges between these so that they can all get out and onto the, onto the, onto the target area. Um, they have a problem in achieving that. And the reason they have the problem in achieving that is, although the forecast is clear with a high-pressure system. And although there's a beautiful full moon, which is required, because as they're flying at low level, they are relying on visual navigation as much as they are on plotting by the navigator to see where they're, to see where they're going. Problem is, the forecast hasn't picked up the fact that the wind speed is strengthening. And the wind is strengthening from the north. So some of the planes in the northern group drift down a little bit over the island of Texel which is a flak hotspot, and they actually score uh, casualties there. Um, and the southern group also drifts, um, but not quite so much as the, uh, the northern one. But again, they do encounter flak that they might otherwise have, have avoided. But even so, enough aeroplanes make it over the, the, the target area in, uh, that allow Gibson to attack the priority target, which is the, the Mona Dam. Let's just pause there for a moment. In the pre-planning, uh, Barnes-Wallace had always suggested that the priority target should be the Mona 
and the Sorper with Ida as number two target. Somehow, when that was translated into the battle plan for those three groups, um, the target prioritisation got out of sync. So the Mona came first, and then they were to go on to the Ida, and if the Sorper hadn't gone, uh, hadn't been destroyed by the northern group, then uh, Guy Gibson would uh, direct other aircraft uh, onto it. So it was, there was a little bit of an error, it is thought, in the, uh, in the battle plan. When they get there, uh, they have already taken casualties. So, for example, out of that northern group, um, one aircraft has had its um, uh, radio shot out by, by flak. In all other respects, the aircraft's absolutely fine. But this operation depends on really close communication between people actually in the aircraft and people actually managing the attack. Are these um, radios um, in any way encrypted? No, they're using plain-speaking radios, uh, VHF, and it's the same system that have been used by fighter aircraft, and that was specifically recommended by, uh, by Gibson. He thought the system was uh, reliable, and he wanted to be able to speak plainly rather than wasting time through encryption uh, to the crews when he's up there actually managing, managing the raid. Another aircraft which had difficulties on the way in um, was flying so low over the, the sea that they actually, the bomb underneath the belly of the aircraft actually hits the sea, is torn loose, rips off the back wheel of the, the aircraft, and suddenly a wave of water comes into the, uh, into the aircraft, and the, uh, the pilot has to yank on his joystick to try and pull it up, at which point that wave of water that's hit the aircraft all go swelling down on top of the, the rear gunner at the back. Uh, as do the chemicals of the Sani Lu at the back, which makes him a very unhappy chap. So that he has to go back. And that's two out of action from the Northern Group all already. And the drama isn't over. Because when they go um when they go back, the one that's had the radio shot out can land, get in, and that's uh, that's perfectly okay. Uh, the one that's gone back with the damaged aircraft lots its bomb knows he's going to have to crash land when it gets back to Scampton. So he spends a considerable period of the night driving around and around and around uh, the base, using up fuel so he doesn't have any fuel to burn. Well, he's coming in to land later on the evening when other members of the task force are returning from the, uh, from the project. And they're coming to land as well, and suddenly he's coming down, and there's another Lancaster directly underneath him. So it's very nearly a nasty accident on the, on, on the base. And they, they couldn't dump fuel? It's a good question. I don't know the answer yeah. to that. Right. But in terms of what happens actually over the, over the dams, um, Barnes-Wallace initially hoped that uh, certainly one bomb would be sufficient to uh, knock out the Mona if it was hit in, in, in the right place. Well, more than that were, were required. So Gibson uh, gathers his aircraft just to the south of the dam and they circulate. Well, first of all, he has to assess who he's got, make contact with them and give them the uh, instructions for the final approach. Um, the final approach on the Mona Dam is a little bit easier than it will be for the Idra Dam because they find the approach has got a slightly longer uh, drift to it. So it means they've got more time over the water to get the right height and calibrate uh, the height and the distance from the, from the dam. 
Um, even so, Gibson goes in, does a dummy run, and most of the pilots will do a dummy run, actually. Uh, he then what, goes... So before they drop, they get shot at. Oh, yeah. For the hell of it. They but... get shot at. And, in fact, we the um, one of the German gunners, or commander of the flak battery on the Mona Dam, is called Karl Schutter. Very appropriate, uh, very appropriate name. And he describes how when the aircraft were flying in, he didn't know they were dumb and wrong at the time, but he did later. It was very difficult to see them. They were low. It was dark, even with the even with the full even with the full moon. Uh, but he says the minute they turned on the lights to calibrate their height, they could actually see the aircraft and aim their guns uh, perfectly. So Gibson's run goes in uh, flak, doesn't his aircraft? Screams over the top of the van. Eventually, he makes his approach drops his bomb, and it hits it absolutely dead centre. And they see this. These bombs are really powerful. He said the swoosh of water went up to a 1,000 feet and a terrific flash and a bang. And the waves on the lake took several minutes to subside so that aircraft number two could go in and make its approach. Uh, this was Hopgood's attack, and he goes in and he's hit by the, the flak, uh, probably on the starboard wing, and one of the engines promptly catches fire. It's obviously set fire to the uh, to the to the fuel tank. Drops the bomb, which uh, misses. In fact, he jumps over the dam and hits the power station the other side. And he's desperately trying to pull the aircraft uh, up. Um, three of the personnel, three of the aircrew, manage to uh, jump out of the aircraft. Two survive, although they're very low. They, they're literally opening their parachutes, I think, in one instance before they leave the aircraft because they know they're so low. And one, in fact, uh, damages his back so badly he's, uh, he, he dies uh, in the hands of in a German hospital. And the rest perish as the aircraft explodes. And there are photographs taken later by the Germans of wreckage of a Lancaster bomber all over the hills surrounding the, uh, the Mona Dam. Not a nice sight to see. For the remaining colleagues have to go in and uh, and pursue the pursue the attack. As we circled round, we could see a great thousand feet column of whiteness still hanging in the air where our mine had exploded. We could see with satisfaction that spam had been good and it had gone off in the right position. Then, as we came closer, we could see that the explosion of the mine had caused a great disturbance upon the surface of the lake, and the water had become broken and furious, as though it were being lashed by a gale. At first we thought that the dam itself had broken, because great sheets of water were slopping over the top of the wall like a gigantic basin. This caused some delay, because our mines could only be dropped in calm water, and we would have to wait until all became still again. We waited. We waited about ten minutes, but it seemed hours to us. It must have seemed even longer to Hoppy, who was next to attack. Meanwhile, all the fighters had now collected over our target. They knew our game by now, but we were flying too low for them. They could not see us, and there were no attacks. At last, hello, M. Mother, you may attack now. Good luck. OK, attacking. Hoppy, the Englishman, casual but very efficient, keen now on only one thing, which was war. He began his attack. He began going down over the trees where I'd come from a few moments before. We could see his spotlights quite clearly, slowly closing together as he ran across the water. We saw him approach. The flak, by now, had got an idea from which direction the attack was coming, and they let him have it. 
When he was about one hundred yards away, someone said hoarsely over the RT, Hell, he's been hit. M. Mother was on fire. An unlucky shot had got him in one of the inboard petrol tanks, and a long jet of flame was beginning to stream out. I saw him drop his mine, but his bomb aimer must have been wounded because it fell straight on the powerhouse of the other side of the dam. But Hoppy staggered on, trying to gain altitude so that his crew could bail out. When he got up to about 500 feet, there was a livid flash in the sky and one wing fell off. His aircraft disintegrated and fell to the ground in cascading, flaming fragments. There it began to burn, quite gently and rather sinisterly, in a field some three miles beyond the dam. Someone said, Poor old Hoppy. Another said, We'll get those bastards for this. A furious rage surged up inside my own crew, and Trevor said, Let's go in and murder those gunners. As he spoke, Hoppy's mine went up. It went up behind the powerhouse with a tremendous yellow explosion and left in the air a great ball of black smoke. Again, there was a long wait while we watched for this to clear. There was so little wind that it took a long time. Many minutes later, I told Mickey to attack. He seemed quite confident, and we ran in beside him and a little in front. As we turned, Trevor did his best to get those gunners, as he had promised. Bob Hay, Mickey's bomb aimer, did a good job, and his mind dropped in exactly the right place. There was again a gigantic explosion as the whole surface of the lake shook, then spewed forth its cascade of white water. Mickey was all right, he got through, but he had been hit several times, and one wing tank lost all its petrol. I could see the vicious tracer from his rear gunner giving one gun position a hail of bullets as he swept over. Then he called up, OK, attack completed. It was then that I thought that the damn wall had moved. Of course, we could not see anything, but if Jeff's theory had been correct, it should have cracked by now. If only we could go on pushing it by dropping some more successful mines, it would surely move back on its axis and collapse. Once again, we watched for the water to calm down. Then in came Melvin Young in D-Dog. I yelled to him, Be careful of the flak, it's pretty hot. He said, OK. I yelled again, Trevor's going to beat them up on the other side. He'll take most of it off you. Melvin's voice again, OK, thanks. And so, as D-Dog ran in, we stayed at a fairly safe distance on the other side, firing with all the guns at the defences, and the defences, like the stooges they were, firing back at us. We were both out of range of each other, but the ruse seemed to work and we flicked our identification lights to let them see us even more clearly. Melvin's mine went in, again in exactly the right spot, and this time a colossal wall of water swept right over the dam and kept on going. Melvin said, I think I've done it. I've broken it. But we were in a better position to see than he, and it had not yet rolled down. We were all getting pretty excited by now, and I screamed like a schoolboy over the RT. Wizard show, Melvin. I think it'll go on the next one. Now we had been over the moan for quite a long time, and all the while I had been in contact with Scampton Base. We were in close contact with the Air Officer Commanding and the Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command, and with the scientist observing his own greatest scientific experiment in damology. He was sitting in the operations room, his head in his hands, listening to the reports as one after another the aircraft attacked. On the other side of the room, the commander-in-chief paced up and down. In a way, their job of waiting was worse than mine. The only difference was that they did not know that the structure was shifting as I knew, even though I could not see anything clearly. When at last the water had all subsided, I called up number five, David Maltby, and told him to attack. 
He came in fast, and I saw his mind fall within feet of the right spot. Once again the flak, the explosion, and the wall of water. But this time we were on the wrong side of the wall and could not see what had happened. We watched for about five minutes, and it was rather hard to see anything, for, by now, the air was full of spray from these explosions, which had settled like mist on our windscreens. Time was getting short, so I called up Dave Shannon and told him to come in. As he turned, I got close to the damn wall and then saw what had happened. It had rolled over, but I could not believe my eyes. I heard someone shout, I think she's gone. I think she's gone. Another voice took up the cry and quickly I said, Stand by until I make a reco. I remembered that Dave was going to attack and told him to turn away and not to approach the target. We had a closer look. Now there was no doubt about it. There was a great breach one hundred yards across, and the water, looking like stirred porridge in the moonlight, was gushing out and rolling into the Ruhr Valley towards the industrial centres of Germany's Third Reich. From Guy Gibson, VC, Enemy Coast Ahead. Uh, so the next aircraft goes in, tries a dummy run, hits it, smack on, but they think just possibly at an angle. But he goes off, and again there's a whoosh of water up to a thousand feet, and it's the next bomb that goes in and actually does the does the damage. So they end up, I think it's dropping five bombs on the Mona Dam. And of course, back in Grantham, Wallace and Cochrane and Harris are listening to the programme because part of the deal with the air crews is they report back in a series of code words exactly the progress that they're making on the on on the ground so they know the bombs are being released uh, but they're here they've gone but they haven't heard the code word for it, it, it's broken and then they know they can go on to the next slam that's exactly right and finally they do get the code work that the mona is uh, is is breached excellent and this is one of the things that I find amazing. Uh, obviously, it's what they're used to, is that once they breach the dam, the message has gone back to headquarters and there's lots of whooping and, uh, and excitement. But Gibson says, right, chaps, we're off to the next dam. I mean, most people would think, index, that's a, a good job done. But um... Well, the pre-plan had provided for hitting the priority targets in sequence. And so, you know, another dam was always on the cards if they had enough bombs left and they did so as you say off they went and this was this was a trickier prospect in terms of uh flying because not only do they have to go down a a a, a dog leg in order to make the approach the amount of water for the approach is very much curtailed by a spit that goes into the center of the lake and the spit isn't isn't a flat spit it's got a ridge going down down the spine of it and they spend a lot of time in dummy runs and, and, and failures until they actually have a, have a success. Tragically, uh, this is where Flight Lieutenant Charles Maudley uh, gets very ba- badly damaged. Uh, he actually makes the approach after, I think it's a couple of goes, uh, some of the other pilots take nine dummy runs before they're confident of their, uh, their approach. Um, and he got the distance wrong. So the bomb skips, and instead of hitting the water and then sinking, it hits the um, the concrete above the water level. So there's an almighty explosion and a flash, just as Lancaster's flying over it. And it's pretty clear that it's damaged the aircraft. 
And Gibson phones up and says, uh, Charles, are you OK? And the all of the crew here on the on the radio, this very weak voice saying, I think so, stand by. And then they hear nothing, nothing at all. In fact, what happens is the aircraft is damaged and they fly on and they either crash on the journey home or are taken out by anti-aircraft fire. We, we don't know. But the Eda's broached and water's pouring down the glen. So that's two out of three. The Sorper Dam was a slightly different design of dam, wasn't it? Yes. The, the Mona and the uh, Eda dams are, broadly speaking, crescent-shaped and they're concrete, concrete walls. Uh, the Sorper Dam had a concrete core but with earth banks on either side. And so it wasn't going to be appropriate for a bouncing bomb to be delivered onto the side of it um, because, of the, because of the slope. And as it rolled down the slope, it'd be taken farther away from the critical point of the, critical point of the dam. So the instruction there was to drop the bomb directly on top of the dam. Now, in order to do that, they had to fly along it. Um, the problem with that being that the sides of the valley uh, in which the Sorpa Dam uh, sat very, very steep. Not only that, on one side, right in a level with the line of the dam, was a village with a church spur. So the first um, plane there is the uh, surviving plane from the, the first group, the northern group. His story has already started in an extraordinary way. This is a pilot's name, McCarthy. Um, when they're going through their pre-flight checks, he finds that his aircraft is uh, it shouldn't be flown. It's, uh, it's uh, as they say, it's US. It didn't pass its checks, in other words. So they immediately got out of that aircraft into the spare one that was being started up and used that one. Well, by the time he took off, he's, he's two hours late. So he's late onto the scene, but he decides to, and he's out of communication with uh, uh, with Gibson. Um, so he decides to take on the attack on the Sorpa himself. And I think they do somewhere in the region of 10 approaches. They just can't get it right. And eventually the crew's beginning to grumble. They said, for God's sake, get a move on. We can't do this again. And on his final approach, he makes it and they drop the bomb and he lands slap, bang, warp in the middle on top of the dam. And off it goes. Big bang. And they can see it's done an immense amount of damage, but it's not going to dislodge it. And what will happen to the Sorpa Dam is some of the crews from the, um, from the reserve will be directed to the Sorpa. And I think two more bombs hit it on the, on the top. It's damaged, but it doesn't break. Right. All three dams have been attacked and they head home. And by and now, I imagine there are night fighters after them and everybody's aware of what they've been up to. Yes. Um, in some cases... The journey home um, isn't well, isn't as easy as the one in, and the one in was pretty was was pretty tricky. You know, they've been flying around for a, a long period of time. Uh, it's not easy to get back onto the paths you might have pre-plotted. Uh, if your aircraft's damaged, you will probably make a decision to take a slightly slightly different route. The wind has been stronger than they they thought. Um, and there are, a lot of the aircraft uh, end up flying over ACAC hotspots. One of them actually flies over a marshalling yard, which is full of uh, anti-aircraft guns. Uh, and it's a pretty hairy journey home. 
back in Bomber Command, they're, they're pretty pleased with the results, and Harris decides to ring Washington, where Churchill and Portal are, to give them the good news. Yes. Um, they are delighted, um, but they're beginning to understand now that uh, casualties have been, been high. And Barnes Wallace in particular, he's in the, in, in the control room with the rest of the team, you know, He's gone through a hell of an evening because he hears that the first few bombs hitting the Mona Dam haven't broached it, haven't breached it. And he's saying, oh, my goodness gracious me, you know, has this all been for, for, uh, for nothing? When he goes, of course, he's desperately relieved. And then the actuality of uh, the casualties coming in hit the him bill. and he becomes really quite uh, depressed. But, as you say, Sir Arthur decides that now is a good time to let Portal in America know, because he's twigged that if we can give this good news to the Americans while Churchill and Portal are out there for these high-level discussions, that must be a good thing, bearing in mind that the previous year and the previous time Winston Churchill was over there negotiating with um, Roosevelt, he gets news of the fall of Tobruk, which is puts him into a, a black dog despair uh, so, yes, I mean, Sarafa is quick on to the, the PR value of it. but To call up the White House. He has a problem, because he tells the uh, operator to call up the White House. She puts him through to a pub down the <laughs> road. And the angry publican, I mean, it's now, you know, early hours of the morning, gives, uh, let's loose a terrific barrage, shall we say, of, uh, of vective. And Sarafa's rather put back. But eventually, after negotiating various switchboard ladies... Um, they get through and, and the news is passed on. So at the beginning we said that uh, Harris was uh, sceptical about the whole thing and thought it was going to be a disastrous pile of tripe. Um, but he sends a message to the um, commander and crews of um, 617 at 5 Group um, as follows. Please convey my warmest congratulations on the brilliant and successful execution of last night's operation to the aircrew. I must say that what they have been through in training and their skill and determination in pressing home their attack will forever be unsurpassed in the Royal Air Force. In this memorable operation, they have won a major victory in the Battle of the Ruhr, the effect of which will last until the Bosch are swept away in the flood of final disaster. Yes. To end with a flourish there. End with a, a flourish. Also, I might also point out that after they receive um, news in, in, in um, the ops room at Grantham, uh, Harris and Cochrane and Barnes Wallace then immediately go to uh, Scampton and are present when the, the remaining crews are flying, flying in and are present in the debriefing rooms. And there's that amazing um, photograph of some of, the um, some of the crew being debriefed, sitting around a, a, a table. And Harris is there, and the look on all their faces, as all, as though they've all been through um, Armageddon. And you mentioned that Wallace was very upset, um, and actually said that he he wished the whole thing he wouldn't have pushed the whole thing forward if he knew how many of the men were going to die, but. Um, they were they were showered in awards and and the losses were very high fifty three out of one hundred and thirty three. Yes, uh, which also raises the question as to how to follow this up, 
both Wallace and Albert Speer, two sides of the uh, equation, were very surprised that there weren't further bombing raids to um, make the repair of the dams difficult and therefore to make the impact uh, longer. Uh, Albert Speer... He was the um, Nazi minister of munitions. Yes, and he was an uh, architect and, and engineer, uh, also chairman, I think, of the Tote organisation after uh, Tote p- passed on. He took under his own personal wing the repair of the, the dams. Well, we're talking about the night of the 16th to 17th when they were uh, breached. By October, they were repaired and up and running again. Uh, so it's a question as to what the material impact had been. And both Wallace and Spear were surprised there hadn't been follow-up raids to impede the, the repair of those dams. Um, I think there are probably a number of reasons for that. I think... The, there was some shock at the heavy casualty rate of this uh, of this raid, and the feeling that if you were going to bomb it from say fifteen to twenty thousand feet, as opposed to level, the chances of actually hitting something were really rather really rather low. Given they were finding it difficult to hit Essen, Dusseldorf, and Berlin on some occasions. Yes. And so, in many respects, the uh, the great success of the raid was it, it was a terrific public relations effort for Bomber Command. I mean, the king gave out medals, and a sort of legend was born. Yes, and it was um, it became very high profile news in the papers at home and in America and in, well throughout the British Empire, but particularly in the United States of America. And there were some practical benefits as well in that. Uh, Production wasn't wasn't curtailed. It was a short term impact on some of the factories in the in the valleys below the dams. There's some loss of life, uh, tragically civilian loss of life, uh, but also 400 and so workers who had been prisoners of war or just taken up from Russia. But uh, Speer had to draft in over 7,000 workers to repair those dams. Now those workers came from places like the Atlantic Wall where there was a very significant um, impact. You know, the Atlantic Wall was no And the concrete, complete... I imagine, as well. Well, uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, other benefits were the fact that 617 Squadron was maintained as a special purpose squadron uh, and it would fly subsequent missions of uh, great daring and skill, such as the attack by the Torboy bombs. Th- these are 10-ton bombs that are designed to create those earthquakes that we were describing a little earlier in the talk. Uh, they were used to um, sink the turpits. They used to bomb the only tunnel under the River Loire at Saumur. They were also used, or a larger version, in fact, was used in the bombing of uh, what is today the La Coupole Museum, but the the great big concrete V2 assembly plant in, in, in northern France and one of the most skilful bits of flying was their role in D-Day, when 617 Squadron was responsible for dropping strips of tin foil that simulated an invasion fleet going across the British Channel towards the Pas de Calais, uh, thereby reinforcing the uh, the illusion that the British-American invasion was going to be in the Pas de Calais and not in, yes. not in Normandy. Commanded by Patton, was it? 
Yes, well, yes. Uh, command and, uh, Patton commanded the, uh, the, the fake US First Army established in, in, in Kent. The skill of the flying lay in the fact that they had to fly at exactly the same speed as if they were an invasion fleet, so that when this was picked up by German uh, radar, they would keep on guessing that there's about to be an invasion in the Pas de Calais. Uh, and 617 is um, Gibson doesn't stay in command and, in fact, is killed not long after. And the great Leonard Cheshire takes over. Yes, Leonard Cheshire, VC, and uh, particularly skillful as a, uh, as a pathfinder, which is now becoming the established technique for bombing industrial targets uh, in the Ruhr. I mean, the problem for bomber command has been accuracy of bombing. It's highly ironic that the Dambuster project has been, uh, you know, renowned for the accuracy of its bombing, using an extraordinary piece of uh, engineering to achieve the to, to achieve the effect that it did. The real problem they had in bombing the rest of the Ruhr is, in part, the inability to place bombs. You know, sometimes within three miles of a of a target. Earlier in the war, it was uh, it was worse than that. But men like Leonard Cheshire now were beginning to fly pathfinder squadrons, uh, dropping flares on the target, so it became easier to mark out the target area for bombers. Excellent, Hugh. Well, a final word on Operation Chastise, and then we'll close. A final word has to be that the accolade that went with the myth, that went with the PR, is thoroughly well-deserved. I mean, these young men, uh, average age in the region of 21 to 22 years, put themselves through real stress and strain in order to achieve the uh, in order to achieve the project, uh, fighting in a cause that they believed was uh, just and doing their duty. And the human side of it is probably the uh, amongst the greatest achievements of the the Dambuster project. Uh, we know that the story was pumped up uh, for PR reasons, but it should never be forgotten that the real true story is extraordinary bravery and skill of the pilots and the air, air crew, and don't forget the ground crew as well, in making the project feasible in the first place. Yes, 53 killed out of 133, and by the end of the war, uh, 30 more of those men were also dead. Thank you, Hugh. Another brilliant and illuminating narrative, Operation Chastise, the Dambusters Raid and Heroic Engagement for Heroic Times. So it goes. You've been listening to Bloody Violent History. Details of Hugh MacDonald Buchanan's tours and talks are given in the show notes. His website is www.hmbtourguide.co.uk. Please pass this podcast on to a friend to help spread the word. You can contact me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.